You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, good morning. As Pastor Matt said, my name is John Robinson. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Liberty. It's a joy to to be with you this morning on the second Sunday of Advent. Uh, our text this morning will be Isaiah chapter 9. Um, we've, we'll continue in Isaiah chapter 9. And if you, uh, if you have uh, a Bible, uh, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible, if you'll look on your wall to your right, the text is on the wall. It'll also be on this wall. It will not be on that wall. Most walls has the text. Um, this Advent season that we are in brings about many emotions and images that strike chords with us, right, in our hearts and minds, whether it's decorated Christmas trees, twinkling lights, fireplaces, warm drinks, Christmas carols being sung, Christmas movies like Die Hard. We all have a picture of what Christmas time looks like. One of those images that we have is this peaceful birth of Jesus Christ in the manger. And what this image portrays, though, is, is easy to miss. There's, there's, there's this cosmic importance, and it's easy to miss this cosmic importance and, and see what's really happening here. How can, for instance, the fullness of God be contained, not just in human form, but in the frailty of a newborn child. The fullness of God and something you can hold in your arms. How the birth of this one child, this God-man, would have cosmic, eternal significance. How his birth would uh, literally alter the physical movement of millions of people 2,000 years later every Sunday morning. Not just the physical movement, but the, the life priorities, the dividing of nations, of families, and shaping of societies, how all of this would occur after the birth of this child. So who is this one who could do that? The only begotten of the Father, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things have been made, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus the Christ, of whom we come this morning declaring, proclaiming, and are excited to worship. The effects of this child, this one child's birth, were not coincidental. In fact, all of the effects of what he would do were foretold 740 years prior to his birth by the prophet Isaiah, of whom we will read from this morning. And his birth would change the world as we know it. Because he would bring about a new kingdom. Let's turn now to this book that we love, Isaiah chapter 9. Look at with me at verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David, over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From this time forth, forevermore, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Living God, help us to hear your holy word with open hearts so that we may truly understand and an understanding that we may believe and believing that we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. Through Christ our Lord and our King. Amen. In these Sundays of Advent, we're looking at three prophetic offices that Christ is foretold to fill and does fill perfectly. One of these offices is in this prophecy of Isaiah, not simply as a child to be born or a son to be given, but as a king who will rule and reign. So today, let's delve into this idea of Christ the King. We'll look at this in three ways. One, Christ the victorious king, or for for Leslie, Christus Victor, it's the Latin. Christ the king of peace, and then citizens of Christ's kingdom. So let's look at Christ the victorious king. Jesus comes as king. And to fully understand the idea of Christ as king we've got to understand that this is going to be hard for us in a Western context, specifically in an American context. Someone who has supreme authority, someone whose edicts are not to be questioned, who has complete and utter control over all of those in his kingdom. And we've heard the jokes of of the overreach of the government recently and, and how it smells of kingship, but let's be intellectually honest, okay? It's nowhere close but it's maybe somewhere closer than we want it to be, right? But it's nothing compared to what true kingship is. Not even in the show The Crown do we see the kind of kingship, rule, and reign, and authority that Scripture is referring to. Christ the King doesn't come to establish a constitutional monarchy, nor would Christ ever be reduced to being simply a figurehead of a nation. Although in many ways... Some of his followers do see him more as a figurehead than a king. Christ has come to be the one true sovereign king. I mean, listen to the words of Isaiah, some of these phrases that he uses, right? And the government shall be upon his shoulders. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government. Now, conservatives and libertarians, relax. Okay? Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. These do not sound like things of an elected official or a man starting a cultural movement or of a spiritual guru or a philosopher who's trying to bring a good idea into the world. No, in fact, this is 
very much an in-your-face announcement of a Messiah who will be king and will rule and reign and have authority. And so for many of us, this is a problem. In the historical narrative of the Bible, of Scripture, we see that when Christ comes into the world, there is a king in Israel. And that king is Herod the Great. And he is but just a a regional authority to the emperor um, uh, Caesar Augustus, who is in Rome. So it would be easy for us to see how those who were in authority, namely in this period of time, Herod the Great, were going to be intimidated or threatened by even the birth of a prophesied king. This is why Herod would soon, after hearing of this prophecy from the wise men, order that all male children ages two and under to be killed in that region of the world. Christ's kingship is intimidating. It's threatening. And like Herod, Christ's sovereign kingship is a threat to any and all. It's a threat to anyone who believes that they are the master of their fate, the captain of their ship, or the king of their own kingdom. Maybe that's you and I. In February 23rd, 1943, six U.S. Marines planted an American flag atop a battle-blasted hill on the island of Iwo Jima, a fiercely defended Japanese stronghold. And in so doing, that flag being raised indicated to all on the island that the American forces now had the advantage and control of this strategic little Pacific island. And we all know from our Star Wars history, as Obi-Wan says, he has the high ground over his enemy, so the battle is won. Right? The incarnation of Jesus, Jesus coming to earth, is the proverbial flag in the ground. It is the strategic moment that God takes the land, claiming it to be his. He came, and in many ways, to a battle-blasted world where the prince of power of the air was present and active. When Christ was born, he was born into a dark time for all of those who were in Israel, especially for God's people in Israel. And in many ways, were oppressed yet again. So we've gone through the book of Judges. We see the oppression. And they were oppressed and conquered again by another godless master. This time was dark, and even as in the prophecy of Isaiah says that the time is dark, you can even read here in this first scroll of Isaiah 9 too, it was dark in that time. But when Christ comes, he brings light. After darkness, light. Post tenebris, lukes, as the reformers would say. He brings with him, like any conquering king, a kingdom. We talk a lot about the economy of heaven and how Christians prioritize things differently and how in many ways this heavenly economy is counterintuitive to the earthly economies. For instance, the first in the the kingdom of heaven, in the economy of heaven, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. In the kingdom of heaven, um, the greatest in the kingdom shall be the servant to all. It's counterintuitive. 
And this is what happens at the incarnation. Jesus Christ comes not as a ruling, reigning, authoritarian king, but he comes as a child. And he inaugurates his kingdom at his birth. Heaven comes down in the person of Jesus Christ. God walks with man just as he did in the beginning when he walks with Adam and Eve in the garden. Bringing with him a new beginning, a new and better way to be reconciled to the Father, this time through the Son. Jesus the King does this because he's a good king. So after these years of darkness, light has come. And this is what a good king does. He brings light to darkness. He brings justice where there is injustice. He brings food to the hungry. He brings hope to the hopeless. He sets prisoners free. And he will come in his ruling and reigning office to establish a kingdom that will be better than any kingdom humanity has ever known. He, in the lineage of David, will reign over God's people better than his father, David. He will bring about justice and righteousness. Again, what it says here in Isaiah is that the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore. These are truly very important activities of what God's king and kingdom would, would be. Calvin, in his, um, in his commentary on Isaiah, says this about this kingdom. To order it and to establish it with justice and righteousness. He describes the quality of the kingdom, but a comparison drawn from earthly governments. For he says that Christ will be king in order to establish his kingdom with justice and righteousness. These are the means by which the earthly governments prosper and take deep root. But those who are only administering, though by fear and violence, cannot have a lasting kingdom. Since, therefore, justice is the best guardian of kingdoms and governments, and since the happiness of the whole of the people depends on it, by this clause, Isaiah shows that the kingdom of Christ will be the model of the best kind of government. But he continues, and this is very important. Listen, listen to this. Justice and righteousness do not here relate to the outward affairs of state. We must observe the analogy between the kingdom of Christ and its qualities. For being spiritual, it is established by the power of the Holy Spirit. In a word, all of these things must be reviewed, must be viewed as referring to the inner man. That is, when we are regenerated by God to true righteousness, outward righteousness indeed follows afterwards. But it must be preceded by the, that renovation of the mind and heart. We are not Christ, therefore, unless we follow what is good and just and bear on our hearts the impress of that righteousness which has been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Christ establishes his kingdom in his people, first in their hearts and then in their actions. So Christ comes here, and he comes to establish his kingdom in his people. And this means the dismantling of false kingdoms, kingdoms of darkness, kingdoms of chaos, not of peace. And thus, in order to establish peace, there must be conflict. When Christ comes to establish 
his, his rule and to bring about peace, he must put to death the things that threaten this peace. And so we continue with our second point this morning, Christ, our King of Peace. There are four things that threaten Christ bringing his peace. There are four things that Christ uh, has conflict with. And Robert uh, Peterson, reflecting on Calvin's writings of the atonement, he says these are the four enemies that God uh, deals with. The devil, death, sin, and the world. These are tenacious foes out to destroy humankind. In his commentary on 2 Corinthians, Calvin tells how the devil's main objective is to keep sinners from believing the gospel, attacking the mental processes. The devil has blinded their understanding to keep the unsaved from trusting Christ as Savior. Death, another powerful foal, wields its favorite weapon, fear. Calvin writes of the misery of the life of those who are afraid of death. They are most pitiable creatures whose very life is a state of servitude and one of constant anxiety because of their fear of dying. Death must, of necessity, be terrible to those who think of it without Christ. Sin, a third adversary who preys upon the human race, is a cruel master. Outside of Christ, sin reigns in us, as Calvin would say in his Ephesians commentary. The word under the world understood as that sinful world system that opposes Christ's kingdom is a fourth opponent. While commenting on 1 John, Calvin explains that the, the world is filled with corruptions of every kind and the abyss of all evils by which man is captive, captivated to withdraw from God. We have these four enemies that are oh so powerful and oh so present in the life and the world that we live in. But our hope is in the peace of God and the fact that he is, as Isaiah would say, mighty God. He is able, he is mighty. He is able to take on his enemies and have victory over them. He has victory over the devil. He binds the devil. He has overcome the doubt that the devil brings and our inability to believe the gospel. He renews our mind in Christ Jesus. He has given us faith. But Jesus even tells us to pray for more faith. Right? We need to be reminded of the gospel daily. We need to be quick to rely. We are so quick to rely on our own powers, right? Our own righteousness, our own goodness, you know, how many times have we said to ourselves, well, I'm a good person. Well, I'm, I'm, well, I'm at least better than that guy or that girl. So, like, I'm doing okay, right? We rely on our own righteousness. We rely on our own ability, our own finances, our own status in this world. We need to remember the gospel of Jesus Christ, which tells us that our own righteousness, our own goodness is but filthy rags. We must rely on the righteousness of Christ that perfect righteousness. This is why we take communion weekly here at Liberty and why taking communion is so important to remind us of the gospel in a physical and tangible way. Christ beats death as well. 
As Pastor Matt mentioned last week, fear is a powerful thing. We see the power of fear and particularly the fear of death play out in our lives and maybe more than ever in our day is a reality for many of us. It's fear of death. We are notably a culture right, that is unacquainted with the intimacy of death. Although death is all around us much of the time, we are not nearly as acquainted with death as those generations that come before us. Many of us have never killed the food that was put onto our table. Many of us have never fought in wars where brothers and sisters have died next to us. And thanks to modern medicine, many of us have not seen our children die out of infancy or at a young age because of polio, influenza, or scarlet fever. We live far into our 80s and sometimes 90s. And this is not a bad thing. It is something to be treasured. But these are all factors that have taken away the presence and reality of death from our lives. And so we fear it. We are unfamiliar with it. It terrifies us. And I don't know if this distance from death is a good thing or not. But I do know this, as Paul says in Philippians 1, verses 21 through 24, For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart to be with Christ, for that is far better but to remain in the flesh is far more necessary for your account. We are not to desire death, want death, or die prematurely. Paul says here, there is still fruitful labor to be done. And he also says that it is necessary for the others for him to stay alive. But we also, as Christians, need not fear death. Death does not have the final word. For Christians, to fear death is to minimize the power of Christ's resurrection. Let me say that again. For Christians, to fear death is to minimize the power of Christ's resurrection. Christ overcomes death's lasting sting, its effects, and its eternal damnable consequences. In his resurrection, he conquered the sting and power of death. He has triumphed over it. He has also conquered sin. He conquers sin. Sin that which so easily entangles. The power of sin, the penalty of sin, is overcome by the king of kings. Another one of the upside-down aspects of God's economy is that even though there is the presence of sin, which that too will be fully overcome, the power of sin and the penalty of sin have been defeated by those who are found to be in Christ's kingdom. Jesus sets the prisoners free from these powers, this penalty, and eventually from the very presence of sin itself. We now live free from these things as citizens of God's kingdom. And the fourth thing he overcomes, he overcomes the world. Finally, when Jesus is king and we are in his kingdom, he frees us from the corruption of the world. As uh, we'd mentioned, Calvin had mentioned even, uh, the world is filled with sin, and that sin in people infiltrates systems and corrupts every place with every kind and the abyss of all evils, which man is captivated with to withdraw from God. 
to ignore the depths of which sin corrupts is either blindness or sheer naivete. Christ overcomes the world by setting the heart and mind of his people free and giving them a greater priority. The summation of the law and the prophets, to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, is the new priority for those found in the kingdom of God. So Christ comes as king to battle against and overcome these enemies, the devil, death, sin, and the world, and in so doing brings peace. This required conflict, it's a required conflict. Peace has a cost. The greatest result of this conflict is the death of the king himself. The king lays down his life to bring about the fullness of his kingdom. In his atoning work on the cross, Christ won victory over his enemies, over the devil, over death, over sin, and over the world, that we may have peace between God and man by him imputing to us his righteousness and by being the wrath-absorbing, sacrificial lamb and conquering king of peace. So for us then, how should we live? How should we live as citizens of God's kingdom? So we'll close with this point. Christ comes, and coming as king, wins the victory for his people. If Jesus is our peace, we too then should be peacemakers. This will take conflict. It takes conflict to win peace. This will take stepping into awkward conversations, messy situations, difficulty, hardship, and a lot of times with the people that we know and love. But in so doing, in so stepping into these situations, you are stepping into the places where Christ has gone first. In his incarnation, he has gone before you and I and steps into these places as the peacemaker. Fight the devil, Christian. Fight the devil. Don't fear death. Don't give in to sin. Fight against the worldly powers. I'm grateful for friends of ours here at Liberty who are about to be doing this practically by stepping into foster care and being foster care parents. They're walking into this with eyes wide open, knowing that this is not going to be easy, knowing that this is going to be messy, knowing that foster care is hard, right? And that there is brokenness, not only in themselves, but in the lives of those who would come and be with them, right? There's plenty of evil still to fight in this world. And there are ways in which we can do that. We can fight against sin. We can fight against systems and fear and the devil's servants, their works and effects. Because we have a victory in Jesus, because he has won the victory for us and continues to win victories for us as his people. So believe that. Walk in that truth that when you go, Christian, you go with Christ walking before you. Walk with your feet 
fitted with the gospel of peace. Knowing that Christ brings peace. Be bold where you step. Have confidence in the time and place where, where you live. Don't simply keep peace by being silent. Make peace by bringing the Prince of Peace, the King of Peace, with you. Have confidence, dear brothers and sisters, that you have the King of Kings with you, that you reign with him, that the devil, death, sin, and the world are no match for the wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Go with that confidence, be encouraged, and take heart because he has overcome the world. Let's pray. Christ, our King and our peace, we only have peace because you have won it for us. You, Christ, rule and reign. You bring the dead to life for your life itself. God, move now in power in the hearts and minds of your people. May we, the people of your kingdom, live in such a way that reflect the goodness and righteousness and justice of our King, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.